Welcome to the Queer Arabs Podcast. This is Alia. I have a guest on I'm really excited to talk to. I, I was telling her that this is just very surreal for me. Hey, thank you for being here. Can you just introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, uh, my name is Jillian York. Um, I'm a writer and activist. Um, and yeah, this is one of the weirder stories in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, for context, um, Nadia and I were talking about um, a gay girl in Damascus the other day, like not long ago. And it brought me back to it was 10. It was about 10 years ago that all of this was happening for me. And I think for a lot of other people, there was this blog, um, and it was about a gay woman in Syria, <laughs> like, you know, quote unquote. Um, <laughs> and and I remember like that being the first ever queer Arab voice other than my own that I had ever had any exposure to. I So, of course, like I, like a lot of people, just felt this deep connection to this person, um, Amina. And then all of it unraveled, it came to light that it was being run by this white dude, like, <laughs> totally impersonating, um, who created this persona. Along the way, like, he caused a lot of damage, because he, yeah. uh, yeah, and he actually really did harm a lot of people in the process. This many years later, like a decade later, this came back to mind. Now that we have our own podcast called The Queer Arabs, and we now know this like very wide network of queer Arabs, we thought it would be interesting to talk about this on in our own space. And actually, like, it, it feels like a reclaiming of some in some way of this narrative that was kind of like appropriated back in the day um, and that was damaging to a lot of people. So um, in June, I looked at my, I looked back at Facebook. Um, in June of 2011, Jillian wrote to me because I was, and I think you were probably like checking in with a lot of people around that time because I had befriended quote of Mina on Facebook, just like a lot of people did. So Jillian wrote messages just being like, hey, does anyone actually know Amina? Like there's now, there are now questions. Is she who she says she is? And that was just the start of this long process of many people slowly unraveling this. And it eventually like the IP address got traced back to this guy in Scotland. I think it was Scotland, right? Yeah, Scotland. Okay. And yeah, and then it was found out that it was this guy the whole time who created this persona. And I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know why he did it. I don't know, like, what he was gaining from it exactly. I thought it would be interesting to talk to Jillian because Jillian's the first person I heard from about this back at that time. I was wondering if you could tell everyone, like, what is your, what was your connection to... So first off, yeah, I guess first off, how can you like describe kind of how you were connected to the situation at the time? Yeah, so it's kind of like two different threads of my life. One is that I'd been part of this network called Global Voices for a long time. And Global Voices is really cool. Like it's this international blogger network um, that back when it started was trying to bring stories from local blogs into the international media by translating them and contextualizing them. So I'd lived in Morocco for a while and I'd translated and, and contextualized blogs from there. And so I'd gotten to know a lot of other bloggers in the Middle East and North Africa. 
And then the other thing was that I just started a job at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where I was working on international free expression issues. And I got, you know, I heard about, uh, I, I think I'd, I'd known about Amina's blog already, maybe, and then I'd heard about the kidnapping. <laughs> um, and saw that as like, oh, no, like, what if this was, um, you know, Mahabharata or whatever, because I'd been to Syria. Um, I had friends there, and I'd spent time there. And you know, it, it, this, the whole story seemed kind of feasible to me. Um, and so it was something where like, as part of my professional job, I kind of leapt into action. And then as part of my like volunteer work, Global Voices, I was writing about it. And so I was doing this kind of dual thing. And then all of a sudden I was getting emails from people at like the US State Department. And, and really like I was looking back at my emails and like they were, they were emailing me and asking me for help with this other other um, you know, human rights organizations were trying to get involved and it was just this firestorm. Global Voices is a lot more personal for me, right? Like I, when I lived in Morocco, I was maybe 22, 23 and I'm queer and living there, like I, you know, I had a few queer friends very quietly, mostly women. Um, and everybody was pretty hush hush about their lives, but it, you know, I was aware that this was a, a reality, right? Um, and and then Syria is a, a different connection for me, but um, being there, you know, I, I also had queer friends there and knew that this reality existed as well. Um, and so when I came across this blog, you know, her life seemed totally normal to me. I mean, not normal, but like... Um, like very, very plausible. Like it all sounded plausible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, her her English was was made plausible by her, you know, her well, her. It's so weird to talk about it, right? I know. It's his. I know. Um, <laughs> but the fact that you know she she described herself as being Syrian American, having that other identities, her English was completely plausible. Um, everything about her story just seemed legitimate, and you know, she had this person that she'd been corresponding with. Um, I, I don't know if we're naming her because I, I know her life was kind of upended by this as well, but this person who was kind of dating her um, yeah. through distance. And so when the whole thing broke out, my instinct was like, how do we, how do we help her? Um, and so I was just trying to get in touch with all of these people um, who'd been in contact with her. And then it suddenly started to occur, not just to me, but to Liz and uh, Alia Bunima and Ben Doherty, that like, maybe, but why is it that nobody has met her? Um, and so I checked in with my friends in Damascus and, you know, none of them had connections with her. But again, like that also was plausible because there weren't queer spaces in Damascus. Like anything that existed, existed at homes, house parties, whatever. So professionally, I mean, it was my job to to comment, to, to investigate um, anything that was kind of deemed as a threat to free expression. And, you know, a lot of um, a lot of my focus back then and, and still has been on um, people who've been arrested for their speech. Yeah, so, you know, on the personal side, this was just really close to my heart because I had friends in these circumstances. And then on the professional side, it was my job to track free expression issues. Um, and, you know, I've had friends, uh, Razan Ghazawi in Syria, al Fatan in Egypt, who've been arrested by their governments. Um, and, you know, I've worked on their cases in my professional life too, mm -hmm. um, you know, writing petitions to the UN or doing campaigns. And so that's, you know, that was kind of my job in this too, is to try to figure out what was going on and figure out what were the levers that we could pull to get her freed. Um, and, you know, we didn't know who'd, who'd taken her. Um, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, that's traumatic. Like that caused so much trauma for 
everyone like especially people like you who are actually like being called to help and called to do something tangible about the situation probably feeling like i don't know just very lost in that process um when probably normally there are channels and then you 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 just kept reaching dead ends yeah i mean it's yeah. it's it's always traumatic when something like that happens to someone that you know um you know when Razan was arrested in march 2011 in syria um she had told me a couple nights before that she thought she was going to be arrested or sorry it wasn't march i think it was november but anyway in 2011 um she told me that she was about to be arrested and so she'd given me access to her accounts her social media profiles told me to shut them down and so i had a contingency plan in place in her yeah. situation but with Amna's situation, because none of us actually knew her, it was just, it was a much more helpless feeling. We didn't have family that we could get in touch with and say, hey, is it okay for us to do this? Like with Razan, we'd talk to her sister. Um, yeah. You know, with Amna's family, his family's all well known. And so people reach out to them and say, hey, we're gonna do this campaign. Is that okay? What can we do to support you? Um, but in this case, there was nobody to ask for support. And I feel like that was almost, um, by design, this guy who created her intentionally created her as not having any family that she could talk to because then, you know, in this situation, like there would be somebody to reach out to. God, I think I said this to Liz too. I This guy has some beautiful writing skills and I'm like, can he not use it for something else? You have the talent. Can you just like put that somewhere to good use? <laughs> it would have been such a good novel. If he, Why didn't he just sit down and write a novel? I mean, I, yeah. I know now, you know, we might question that now and there are people who would say, oh, that's, you know, like he doesn't have the right to write in that voice. But I, I don't, you know, as a, like, a lover of literature, I'm not sure I agree. There are really beautiful stories that are told from other people's mouths. And so I think that, you know, there's there's room for creativity there and there's room for someone to say, okay, I like I, he'd spent time in Syria, right? If I recall. I, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, so he could have written from the perspective of someone who had been in Syria and yeah. labeled this correctly as fiction. <laughs> and right. yeah. maybe, maybe she resembled somebody that he'd met. Maybe she was like a piece of something new i mean that's where all good fiction comes from but to fictionalize someone's life on a blog in that way to risk it being, being picked up by international media and to to take up so much of people's time and energy and and really like to traumatize people yeah i mean i think that's that's what really hurt so much about this was exactly. you know I, I wasn't bothered by the amount of time i spent on it that's my job but it was more the emotional um it's emotional fuckery. labor. Yeah, <laughs> emotional fuckery, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, I just remember, like, yeah, a lot of us who were feeling just so drawn to it, feeling both deceived and also, wow, I lost this person who had become important to me. And this, yeah. this person doesn't exist, but I felt like I knew her. Wait, was I really just getting to know this guy? <laughs> this like figment of his imagination. And you know, in a way it's we're all getting to know very a very specific part of him. And that's not I didn't want to get to know him. I wanna get to but it was like loss, like losing a person. Yeah, I and mean, it was it was so many things at once, right? It was like it was catfishing. Like, all of that described catfishing, right? Like this this had just become a phenomenon. But then there's there's that aspect of of you know, catfishing her audience and her alleged girlfriend. And then there's, or, well, no, her girlfriend's not alleged. She was the real person, right? Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> there's 
catfishing aspect. And then there's also this like the media baiting aspect. And then there's also the like, she was the Rachel Dolezal before Rachel Dolezal existed, except yeah, she that's what Liz was saying. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Like oh so God. many components. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I just, yeah, thank you for like what you did at that time. I just, I don't know. You know, as someone, just an observer, and feeling this impact, and I, I, at the time, I was just imagining people who were much more drawn into it, and had been much more drawn into it, um, whether voluntarily or not, and just um, how violating that must have felt. You are using, he was using people in the process, creating these emotional connections with people and taking up parts of their lives. For example, um, Amina's girlfriend, giving such vulnerability to this person and opening up to this person. Um, and yeah. Yeah. It's such a strange thing to do. And, you know, I, with all of these stories, like with, with this one, with, um, I remember there was also that, that later thing where Amina had been, Amina quote, quote, had been writing for this publication, Les Get Real, this lesbian website. That's right, yeah. And the person behind that quote, Paula Brooks was also a man impersonating a woman. So these were two men impersonating lesbians talking to each other. And, you know, you have to wonder like that, Rachel Dolezal and all of the copycat Rachel Dolezals. Yeah. What drives people to do that? And I don't right. think we ask that question enough. Um, like yeah. why do people adopt other identities and do these things online? And mm -hmm. some of them obviously are real harms and real appropriation and, and, and theft, but some of them are also just like this exploration of another identity that, that can never be yours. And I right. think that, that that part of it really fascinates me. That should be explored more because there's something going on and like the psychology of that should be given some uh, attention. Yeah. What in someone's life happens that leads to that? Is a person, maybe, I don't know, maybe he was just like so dissatisfied and unhappy in his own life that he was like, imagine if I were somewhere, someone else. Yeah, I agree. Then like, what have you been up to like work-wise? <laughs> I don't know, it'd be cool to get to know you too, <laughs> beyond sure. just like in that context. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I actually have the same job now. So I just started then 10 years ago, and I'm still there. Um, and oh, I just wow. wrote this book. Um, so I wrote this book about, funny enough, I didn't tell that story in it, although I could have. Um, but this book looks at like all of the stories from 10 years ago as well around the Arab Spring and the um, the role that social media played and specifically like some of the stories about um, how like, you know, the parts of the Egyptian revolution that were organized on Facebook that were almost removed and taken down by Facebook um, and, you know, almost weren't allowed to exist. And so, I, yeah, I've been looking and investigating the, the role that corporations play in moderating free speech, basically. Oh, um, wow. By, oh, that's, yeah. Wait, can you show me, what's the name again? Yeah, it's called Silicon Values. Silicon Values, okay. Definitely yeah. gonna read that. Cool. Yeah, I would love that. Um, yeah, I and mean, it looks at it looks at a whole bunch of other things too, like the role that um, social media plays in shaping people's ideas about sexuality and gender and oh, sex. Wow. Yeah. So I guess in some ways this story probably did end up. It fits a lot of different pieces of my life still. <laughs> I feel like the, this is like related. Yeah, it is. I, now I'm like, oh, I should have maybe I should. Have perhaps there's another book to be told. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Also, when the documentary came out about Amina, were you involved in that or connected with that? No, no, I think it was French. It was in French, right? 
I think so. I haven't seen it for so long. Uh, in so I knew long. Not. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, they didn't contact me. I mean, I, I don't know if any of us were actually, but like the people who are involved in breaking the the story, but that, I mean, that's kind of typical. I think the other person, it was like Andy Carvin and then the guys from Electronic Intifada and Liz and me, and we were all sort of coming to this at the same time, but this, that had been like a big year of hoaxes. There had been another one too, um, around this encryption tool called Haystack that this guy in like had, you know, just made up a whole bunch of stuff about this tool that, you know, was supposed to keep people safe, or maybe it was, I think it was a censorship uh, circumvention tool, but it was meant to be used by all these people in Iran. And he was like, he won this award by the Guardian on the stuff and the, the thing turned out to not exist. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think 2011, just in the same way that now we have all of these disinformation campaigns back then, it was like this really hopeful time rather than, you know, the, the, the time yeah. that we find our Oh, but people were still employing these same tactics just in different ways and for different ends. I'm not enough of a tech person to understand what has developed in the past 10 years, cybersecurity wise, and like uh, what measures have been taken to um, lessen the effects of catfishing, if there have been anything, if there has been anything done about that. Um, I have been thinking about like, there really are no legal consequences, right? I mean, which not is so, in most yeah, which is really messed up. In for example, in this situation, it's like so many people were actively like deceived and harmed, and all of the these, even the State Department, like all these very these resources were taken up by this situation, and it's like there's there's no like legal anything in place to navigate that. I, I'm just thinking about how that doesn't, I don't think that's changed. No, it really hasn't. I mean, even even like identity theft where finance is involved, those situations are so hard to solve. I mean, lots of people have their identity stolen, their credit card stolen, whatever, and like never find resolution with that. And then this kind of impersonation is almost, I mean, not to diminish the harm of financial um, catfishing but like this situation is almost more damaging because it's psychological yeah and so like i can i can deal with being scammed out of 200 bucks i can't i like it's still hard to grasp being scammed out of like something like a part of your soul almost yes exactly and, and all of this psych uh, the psychological effects of catfishing like this maybe there who knows maybe there was a financial element at some point who knows like what if someone in that vulnerable of a position there could easily be a money aspect thrown into that. And I mean, I'm glad it didn't get to that point, but like there is potential for it to get to that point. So in a way that that's another, that would be another way for like financial scamming to happen on top of psychological, all of the emotional harm, all of the like depleting of resource, other resources, like I said. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It was really bothering me the past few days, just realizing how little, how little there really is. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, in this case, like the repercussions for this person were, you know, obscurity. Like he, he's not made it, you know, he doesn't get a comeback. He doesn't get a second chance. That's true. Um, which is, you know, similar to a lot of the other harms perpetuated by men um, yeah. and the way that we deal with that societally right now, too. And I think that, mm -hmm. you know, what, I, I'm not sure that he deserves a second chance after harming yeah, people. I don't think so. I don't think I, I really don't. I, I, I'm like, how do you redeem yourself? Yeah. Yeah. 
That's I true. I guess that is, there is that form of repercussion, at least. <laughs> at least we know that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot about like how you would even apply like transformative justice in a situation like this. And right. I don't know how you do that. Because transformative <laughs> justice is already hard enough to figure out what really is transformative justice in particular situations. This is just so far beyond like any comprehension. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that we're up for the task as a society. Like, I, right, I, think I know. Like, there's so many other things happening that it makes sense that we've just decided that, you know what, some people should just disappear. Like, exactly. that is the yeah. best solution for these folks. The world doesn't need to cater to healing you or, like, figuring out how to how to help you heal from what you do. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like everybody deserves to eat. Everybody deserves to have a place to sleep. But as long as he's got those basic things covered, like yep. I don't care if I ever hear his name again. Agreed. Agreed. I like <laughs> that we haven't, I, I, I like that we've intentionally not said his name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no yeah. reason to. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. This just, this feels healing in a way to me to like reach this point in life where we have our own platform. We're real people. We're real <laughs> queer Arabs getting to talk about this. I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of cool that we have come full circle in this way, this very unexpected way. So yeah, I mean, I wonder. You know, maybe there is a little silver lining there in that her, you know, her her fake story might have prompted some people to come out more fully or like speak more freely. I think that it did change some of the conversation. The fact that, you know, that her story at, like came out at the time that Obama was president, like that's the reason the State Department jumped in. Like that wouldn't have happened under Trump. There wouldn't have been that same outcry. Um, yeah. And so I think that it, you know, as much as I can't stand that he did that, I, I do think that there's probably some positives that have come from it. And yeah. that's, yeah. I will say it was like, when, when I thought she was, she existed i it was just very affirming to me and comforting the guy who did this he can't take that away from me like i still have that time as yeah. it, it, it's still a good memory for me that part of it where it's like wow i feel like seen at that point in life where i had not felt that seen that's a good thing to keep in mind like he can't take that part away <laughs> No, not at all. I mean, yeah. just because something didn't really happen. I mean, it's it's almost like, you know, when you think about experiences that people have on like psychedelics, they're not real, but they're healing. And yeah. this wasn't real. <laughs> That's a good it was, way it was to a put trip. It. Yeah, <laughs> it is a trip. It is. It's a mind. It's just this like mind fuckery. And you're like, okay, well, whatever wasn't real about it, at, like objectively, it was still real for me in a way. So at least I can hold on yeah. to that part. Yeah. That's, that's so true. Yeah. I, just, I wanted nice. to share this, like, at the beginning I thought of this, um, yeah. this other book, I didn't write this at all, but this was this book that I'd picked up um, in Lebanon in like 2009, I think it was published by an NGO. Oh, and awesome. it was a Can you describe it yeah. to the listeners? Too? Sure, um, it's called Berin uh, Nastajil, um, my pronunciation is terrible, okay. but um, it's a collection of true stories that was funded by the Heinrich Bo Foundation in, in Beirut, which was really cool. I worked with them a bit at the time. Oh, wow. um, it was all of these, it was an anthology of all of these stories written, I think, mostly or entirely anonymously by uh, queer people in Lebanon. 
Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm writing yeah. this down. Yeah, I think it's not impossible to find it out there. It might even be online at some point. Like, somebody may have put it out there. Um, if not, I'll I'll see if I can scan it or something for you. Oh but my gosh. Um, <laughs> I'll look for it though. Um, yeah, it's really cool though. It has all of these different stories, and some of them had like like there's this one that I've bookmarked um, about my. It's called My Quest to Find Lesbians, and it was a woman who wrote a story about like how she found other other lesbians online in Lebanon, and there were like all these websites and a hashtag Lesbanon, which I thought was really Lesbanon. cute. Lesbanon. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my my the the other co-host who's um, my roommate is Lebanese. I'll tell her that one. So. <laughs> Maybe she'll know about it. Maybe somebody she knows knows about it. <laughs> yeah, right. Awesome. Well, where can people, if you want, no no pressure, if people want to like just follow you for your work and uh, keep in touch on social media to watch like for what you publish next. Um, is there anything that you want to share like social media wise? Sure. Yeah, I'm um, Jillian C. York everywhere, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> if, I'm, if I have an account, that's my handle. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, it was, it, it, we looked on Insta and we were like, oh, okay, there she is. It was, yep, I'm easy. Yeah, easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you again for doing this. this. This and the conversation with Liz felt very cathartic. Well, thank you all so much for listening. You can contact us on Insta, or you can follow us on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook at The Queer Arabs. Contact us at queerarabs at gmail.com. Our website is thequeerarabs.com. Mm-hmm.